So this morning, I, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Most of you know that a couple weeks ago, I was once again on my back in the hospital uh, because my heart needed yet another stent after only five weeks since the previous time I had been in the hospital getting a stent. And the good news is, by the way, is that I'm, I'm good now. The doctors have told me to go on with my life, that I'm in great shape, and, uh, and I can exercise and do all the things that I need to do. I just need to tweak my diet a little bit, of course. Uh, but, but I'm doing great, and I praise God for that. I give him the glory for that. But that's not really my point in telling this story. My point is, is that when you're in the hospital, lying on the bed, and you're staring up at that, that ceiling tile above you that says, call, don't fall, you got a lot of time to think. And as a believer, the thing that I was thinking about is where in God's word do I turn in this moment of my life for comfort and for peace? And so where my heart and my, my mind landed was a passage that has been near and dear to Leslie and me uh, since even before we knew each other. Uh, it's always been one of our favorite passages in the Bible because it is filled with hope. It is filled with encouragement, and it really ministers, and, and it has ministered to us many times over uh, in the course of our lives as we've gone through some very difficult things. And so allow me to read for us this passage. It's, it's a very remarkable passage. It's absolutely amazing what Paul is saying here. And this is what we're going to delve into. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. As I'm lying there in my hospital bed, thinking about this passage, I got to wondering what exactly it is that Paul is exhorting the Philippian congregation not to be anxious about. I mean, it was very clear what I was anxious about, but what about the Philippians? What was their life like? What was it like to walk as Christians in Philippi in around 62 AD? Now, the first thing we need to understand in answering that question is we need to understand the terms here. Uh, the Greek word for anxious here is exactly what we expect. It means to be overly concerned. It means to worry, uh, to be fretful. In essence, that you're lying awake at night, not sure of the outcome, and you just don't really know, and so you're just undone. You're undone with worry. As long as we're Talking about what anxious means, we also need to talk about what Paul is not saying here in this passage. He's not saying, put your head in the sand and pretend like nothing bad is happening around you. He's also not saying, 
Be anxious for nothing. Rejoice in the Lord always because you're being beaten up and persecuted and awful things are happening in your life. And enjoy that. That's what the Lord is saying either. That isn't what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is right in the middle of all that you're going through, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about any of it because we serve a God who keeps his promises. We serve a God who not only loves us, but who also transforms us, causes us to be new creatures. And brothers and sisters, we know the end of the story, don't we? So there's no way in the world that we can lose. And so therefore, don't be anxious. Now, of course, what Paul is driving at is the opposite of anxiety. He's driving at peace in verse 7. He wants us to know the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And so what we're going to be doing here, what we're doing today is we're beginning a, a little three-part series on especially verses 6 and 7 uh, right here in Philippians chapter 4. And we're calling the series to the saints at Philippi, since that's who Paul is writing to. So today we're going to meditate on what it means when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And then at the end of November, when I have the privilege of standing here again, uh, we're going to meditate on prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, because that's pretty profound too. And then finally, at the end of December, uh, we're going to consider the peace of God. Now, Paul is writing this letter from prison, probably in Rome. He might have been somewhere else, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that he's in prison. And he's writing this letter and telling people to rejoice in the Lord always and don't be anxious about anything. Is that what you would be writing uh, to your loved ones and to your friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who are in jail? So he's writing in about 62 AD. Philippi is in Macedonia. This is in Europe. Uh, and uh, Philippi has a population about like Warrington's, 10,000 people or so. Philippi is also along a, a major Roman road called the Ignatian Way. This stretches about 450 miles between the Adriatic coast all the way to a place called Byzantium in what is now Turkey. 450 miles long. This is kind of like US 29, using right on through uh, Warrington, right? There's a lot of travelers who come down this road. There's commerce that's traveling along. Uh, and we have a lot of people stopping by, at least for a hamburger. And this is exactly what Philippi is like being along the Ignatian Way. And so Paul is writing a very warm letter of friendship to a church that has supported him through thick and thin, through some very difficult things. They've even supported him financially even though they didn't have very much to give. This was a very poor church, and yet they gave out of what God had given them, and they gave abundantly for them. And so uh, Paul loves this church, and the church loves Paul. This is a letter that is oozing with the joy of the Lord. Paul wants the Philippians to, to clear up some of the differences that were rising up among them so that they can be in unity. And he also challenges them to walk as servants even as it's guaranteed that they're going to be facing more and more persecution because they love Jesus Christ. And so Paul today 
is exhorting the Philippians and us, do not be anxious about anything. He has just said for us to rejoice in the Lord. We're not rejoicing. We're not masochists. We're not uh, rejoicing in all the pain we're feeling. We're rejoicing in the fact that we get to serve the Lord, just as, as uh, uh, John Sellers talked about in the catechism. We get to bring glory to God in the way that we live, and that even most especially at times means in our suffering. But the question is, is, do Paul's words apply to us today? And if so, on what grounds are we not to be anxious? Paul's answer, of course, is that the grounds on which we're not to be anxious is Christ himself. It's the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to be anxious about because God, through Christ, has made some promises to us that he will never break. He'll never break them. We sang about those promises today. And so to understand all this, we're going to look a little bit more deeply uh, at the lives of the Philippians and compare them to our own lives. Because after all, if the Philippians weren't going through uh, nearly as great trials as we are today, then, well, then maybe this doesn't apply to us. But if they are going through at least as much trouble as we are, then there's no exception. We rejoice in the Lord always. And we have no reason to be anxious. And so after we compare our lives, we're going to uh, examine in Paul's own words in Philippians. We're going to walk through Philippians to understand why we don't need to be anxious. And the first reason that we don't need to be anxious, that we have no reason to be anxious, is the faithfulness of God. We believe in a God who keeps his promises. And so that means we can trust him. We also don't need to be anxious because we're called to suffer for Christ. This is a divine appointment that God has placed upon us. And so since God has placed uh, on us this divine appointment, we have nothing to fear. We don't have anything to be anxious about. And then uh, we don't need to be anxious because we're called to obey our Lord in humility. And everything that the Lord wants for us is good and good for us. It's never evil. And then finally, we don't need to be anxious because our citizenship is not in this earth. It's not in the United States. It's not even in Virginia. Our citizenship is in heaven because we have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ and we are in Christ. So first, let's take a look at our lives versus their lives back in Philippi. And and. I figure this is a really good time for us to, to meditate on this remarkable statement about do not be anxious for anything, because really, when we think about it, we have a whole lot of things that we could really be anxious about, that we could worry about. In fact, many of us are today. One of the major reasons for that among the majority of us today is the election results yesterday, and it feels like a gut punch. And we're wondering, what in the world is God doing? Maybe he's made a mistake. Maybe he's not as powerful as we are. How in the world could he let those people take control? But then again, there are a few of us who are quite happy with yesterday's results. And so that speaks to the fact that Paul is calling us to unity. And that within the body, we're going to have differing opinions. And so he's calling us to work that out by loving each other, and caring for each other, and deferring to one another. Boy, that's some hard stuff, isn't it? 
But at any rate, we had this long season of the campaign, all the vitriol and the, the horrible things that people were saying to each other on both sides. We've got all of this on our minds, and it just feels like everything is going to hell in a handbasket, right? But you know what? The Philippians were in a similar situation because by 62 AD, you know who their emperor was? It was a man named Nero. He was a warm and fuzzy guy. This was a man who did horrible things. The Philippians weren't quite feeling that yet, but he essentially gave permission for people to persecute Christians because he did himself. We're suffering from the consequences of a pandemic right now. A lot of us are very concerned about it, no matter which end of the spectrum you fall on about it, whether you're a mask wearer or whether you think wearing a mask is silly. We're all worked up about this. We all think either the government has done something horrible or that, that uh, people who don't wear masks are horrible people and putting our lives at risk and all this kind of thing. And so we're worked up about it. Some of us have lost our jobs because of this pandemic. And again, just not even talking about the reasons or, the, or anything else. This is not a political statement. This is just what has happened, isn't it? We've got a lot to worry about this year, whether we worry about it from the standpoint of the economy or whether we worry about it from the standpoint of, golly, I really don't want to get this virus because I'm one of those people who's at risk. And so we worry. Well, the Philippians went through the same thing, only more so. They had diseases that today we could fix with a pill, with a regular visit to the dentist or the doctor's office. And they were dying. The infant mortality rate in Philippi and in the ancient world was about 30%. That means about one in three babies die before they were before they went on to toddlerhood. And we'll get more into that in a second. But they had a great deal to worry about in terms of their health. Things that we get today, we take for granted, we can go to the doctor and get fixed. They were dire circumstances for them. Now, we look around and we see also the moral decay that's occurring in our country. We see uh, the, the horrible uh, worldviews that people have, uh, how people are pushing away God and making gods of their own, God in their own image. And of course, they're worshiping a false god just as much as the pagans who are in and around Philippi were, a god who can do nothing. And so we want to we want to help prevent that for those people. But you see, the, the false gods that people are creating today in their secular humanism and in, in believing that, that the most important thing in this life is me uh, and in denying the God of the Bible because it just feels like that's so old-fashioned and outdated. That's the world we live in. But the Philippians lived in a world full of pagans. In fact, the first Christians, like Lydia, uh, were 
absolutely outnumbered. There wasn't a church on every corner. In fact, there were very few Jews in Philippi, so there wasn't even a synagogue in Philippi. The people there uh, did not know the one true and living God. They had not possibly even heard of him. And so who is this Jesus you're talking about? That's a bunch of silliness. You see, the Philippian culture was very Roman with some Greek mixed in along with some other uh, flavors as well. But the predominant culture was Greek, was uh, Roman. And in fact, when people, people referred to Philippi, they might call it Little Rome. Because when you stood on the streets of Philippi, it felt like what it would be like. It gave you a taste of what it would be like to be in Rome. And so along with the Roman culture comes all of the Roman gods, these gods of Rome and also Greece and other cultures. And by now, in 62 AD, the Romans are actually beginning to worship their emperor, Nero, an evil man who was always associated with tyranny and extravagance and, and incredible debauchery. In fact, one of the most famous stories uh, about him regarding Christianity, this may or may not be true, uh, but the story is, is that he burned Christians alive, basically for the fun of it. That's the kind of guy he was. He was mean. He was terrible. So whether or not that story is true doesn't really matter, but it does uh, convey to us uh, what we can confirm from history of his utter debauchery, his, his absolute denial of anything holy and right and just, and in fact, his celebration of everything evil. We worry about our economy, don't we? Partly because of the pandemic, partly because, well, we worry about the economy. That's just kind of one of our hobbies, isn't it? And we're blaming the other side for what the economy is like today, or unless we're congratulating ourselves that our side has made it all wonderful. Uh, but we also worry about our 401ks and our retirement plans. Uh, we, some of us, are wondering where our next paycheck is going to come from because we've lost our jobs because of the pandemic or other reasons, because of cutbacks and, and all that sort of thing. Well, the economy of Philippi was very much the same. It depended on the whims of an emperor who spent money like it's going out of style. Uh, but there were gold and silver mines in the, in the mountains surrounding Philippi. So there was a, a good, uh, prosperous livelihood for the town. Our gold mine is the federal government, right? Many of us work for the federal government. That's where we go uh, to work. But the Philippian people would go to the gold mine to work and maybe get paid at least enough to get by. They, Philippi was on the Ignatian Way, just like Route 29, so there was constantly commerce coming through, but it also brought a lot of people with different ideas, a lot more pagan ideas, not people bringing the true gospel, except for when Paul and Silas show up. But most of the people are living there uh, just getting by. They're not rich. Some of them are on the edge of poverty. They're, in essence, living from paycheck to paycheck. But at least the town is safe because there's a lot of Roman soldiers who are living there because the, the government had sent them there in part just to protect the town in case it got attacked. At least you'd have a bunch of people in town who knew how to defend it, even if they were old. So 
Very similar to our lives, isn't it? Very similar. Of course, people had families in Philippi. Of course they did. We've already mentioned the infant mortality rate. Uh, but it was, uh, if, if a child lived to age 10, his life expectancy was 45 to 47 because he would live an awfully hard life. And his life would be marked with disease and hardship, malnutrition at times when food was scarce. People being members of families also suffered from the same kind of trials that we experience in families. Some of us are experiencing horrible, horrible, gut-wrenching things in our families. Broken relationships. Uh, relationships that, that don't seem like they could be restored. I think that's one of the most painful things a person can experience. And we should pray for those who are going through things like that. And then, of course, in the church at Philippi, there were some controversies, of course, because we're human beings. Some people were believing errant doctrine and theology and bringing it into the church. And so uh, there's even uh, these two women at the beginning of, of chapter 4 that Paul entreats to agree in the Lord. He doesn't say to agree with each other. He says to agree in the Lord, to give each other deference in their opinions and not to hold them against one another. And so all to say, these people in Philippi are not Bible characters. We, we sometimes use that term. I, you know, we've all been invited to a party where you come as your favorite Bible character. And that always sounds like you're, that, that when you read the Bible, you're reading a play. But we're not. These are real people with real lives who work really hard, work their fingers to the bone. There's no such thing as a button to automate anything. There is no such thing as a microwave oven to, to, make, to, to make your meal quicker. There is no such thing as a car. There is no such thing as people with MDs who knew how to fix you when you got sick. They had all kinds of strange theories about that. They had families. They worked hard. They endured a lot of hardship, just like we do. And in fact, in many ways, even worse. And here's what I mean by that. Paul's first visit to Philippi helps us to understand the kind of reception that Christians would receive in Philippi. Paul and Silas are the first two Christians to walk into that town, and they witness to Lydia, and she and her family become believers. And then as they're ministering in Philippi, there's a slave girl with a spirit of divination. And what this means essentially is that, that people believe that she's the mouthpiece for the pagan god Apollo. And so you can imagine the demonic things that came out of her mouth because she, this spirit was in her. And causing her to do and say uh, things uh, that were ungodly and evil. People, things that led people away from God, not toward him. But at one point, the spirit in her declares, pointing to Paul and Silas, that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You see, they knew, the spirit knew who Paul and Silas were, that they were ministers of the gospel of the one true God, of Jesus Christ. And so long story short, Paul and Silas, they take it by, uh, Paul, uh, uh, 
cast out this spirit of divination, and they get thrown into prison because the owners of this slave girl get upset because he's taken away their income and make up a bunch of charges against them, and they throw them into prison. And then, of course, in the end, the jailer and his family become Christians. So in just a few short days, he wasn't there very long, look at how the church increased from zero to Lydia, the jailer and his family, and Lydia's family as well, and the implication is perhaps even the slave girl, because she no longer had the spirit of divination in her, and she saw the power of God uh, doing powerful things in her life. So the point of all of this is that Christianity at that time was not viewed as Christianity. It was viewed as this sort of wacky offshoot of Judaism. Nobody understood it. Talking about how a man raised from the dead and somehow saved people from their sins. It, it just sounded silly. Same reaction we get today, isn't it? No difference at all. And so... The point of all of this is that as followers of Christ in Philippi, they were constantly risking persecution from the Roman culture. So being a Christian in Philippi was no picnic, just like it's no picnic today. More and more, it's less of a picnic, isn't it? I remember a time when we would put on our resume that we went to church, and I'm a deacon in my church. And that was something good to put on your resume. It would help you get hired. I dare you to put that on your resume today. So our culture is increasingly hostile to Christ. The culture was hostile to Christ back then too. And so then we find these words in verse 6 of Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. How in the world is it that we cannot be anxious in a world that is so full of trouble, so full of vitriol toward our God, whom we love with our lives? How in the world, how in the world can we not be anxious about the direction of our culture? How in the world can that happen? Well, the first reason that we don't need to be anxious about anything is the faithfulness of God. Philippians 1.6, at the very beginning of this letter, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's going to finish what he started. He has begun a work in you, a work that is ongoing. He has transformed your life. You remember what you were like before you believed? God has transformed you from that person into a new creature who now, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who was sent by Jesus Christ himself, who now lives in us and enables us to be able to live in a way that brings glory to God. Isn't that amazing? And not only that, but not only is God with us in the present in that sense, but also we have a future hope that we look forward to. And this is not hoping that, as John might be hoping, John Sellers, that the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl. No, this is, this is hope that is real. It is certain. It is a certain hope. Our faith in Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus is coming back in the same way that he left. He's coming back bodily to gather his own unto himself. And why is he going to do that? 
is so that we can go live in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no such thing as sin, where there's no such thing as sorrow or hardship or trials. There's only the glory of God. And, and as we gather around his throne, we'll get to experience that forever and ever and ever. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 5 of our passage, right before Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, he says, the Lord is near. This is what he's talking about. The Lord is near, not only in terms of his coming again, but also in the here and now, as he enables us to live for him. Because our God is a promise keeper, that means we can trust God. And that's at the root of it all, isn't it? We don't need to be anxious about anything because we trust God and we know how the story ends. We know that it ends with the glory of God and we will get to experience that. And so the, another reason why we don't need to be anxious for anything is, is because we're called to suffer for Jesus Christ. Now that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Oh, boy, we get to suffer, so I won't be anxious. On the face of it, it sounds, it sounds preposterous. But Paul explains what God accomplishes through our faith in Christ. Paul explains in, in verses 12 through 14 of Philippians 1 about what God is doing in his imprisonment in Rome. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I've been thrown in prison, and it's advancing the gospel. How? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, Paul is getting to preach the gospel. He's getting to share the glory of Christ with them so that they can know the one true and living God and not be following after the gods of their imagination. And most of the brothers, that is, most of the people in the congregation in Rome, having, been, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, again, that sounds really wacky, doesn't it? Oh boy, Paul, you're in prison. That really encourages me to trust in the Lord more. Again, on the face of it, it sounds backwards. But look at this. What Paul says is that they're now much more bold to speak the word without fear. The reason that they're so bold to speak the word without fear is that in Paul's example, they see his fearlessness. They see uh, the fact that he's willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so they want to do the same thing. Because they recognize who Jesus is. They know who he is. He is the Lord of all creation. And he is the Lord of their salvation. And so how in the world could we not take the risk, the so-called risk, of preaching the gospel so that others can get to know him too? So that others can become believers? Do we speak the word without fear? How about that? Are we fearless in our proclamation of who Christ is? Do we talk about it out loud, even when it might be uncomfortable? Are we willing to talk about Christ, even when the going gets really tough? And that day is coming, brothers and sisters. 
I shudder to think of the kind of world that our sons are going to live in when they're old men. And frankly, I'm glad that I'm not going to be around to see it. But you know what? That's the day that we're drifting toward, and sometimes we're going there at light speed these days. A day when it is going to be a fearful thing to be a follower of Christ. And yet, Paul is calling us to share the gospel without fear. Because our God is faithful. Our God is a God whom we can trust because he's real. He's the living God. But you see, our suffering for Christ isn't just about the inconvenience of being thrown in jail. It also can mean that we sacrifice literally our lives. Uh, For me, a modern day example of this is in Martin Luther King who set out on a very, very godly cause. And he was thrown in jail many times for doing godly things, for standing up for what is right. And ultimately, he was killed because of that. And that's just a tiny example of what we're talking about here. Paul says in verses 19 through 21 of Philippians 1, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, uh, this is proof of my faith in Christ. And I know that God is going to save me because he's allowed me to give this and bring glory to him. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, what Paul is describing here is what ought to be our attitude as we represent Jesus Christ in this world. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and serving him is so much more valuable than anything in this world. And that knowledge of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can give us hope. There is no politician on this planet who can or ever will be able to give us that kind of hope. There is no one in this world who can assure us of our eternal future. There is no circumstance in this world that can keep us from enjoying Christ now and rejoicing in him now because he is who he is. Jesus said, I am, just as his father said, I am. Jesus is the living God come in the flesh. And that's who we worship. And so our desire ought to be in absolutely every part of our lives, whether we're having fun or whether we're suffering from persecution should be that Christ is always honored in our lives and even physically in our bodies, even unto death. That's powerful stuff. And I know that we probably all ask ourselves this question from time to time as we hear about the martyrs of the Christian faith, like Paul, who ended up being beheaded because he loved Jesus. The time is coming, brothers and sisters, 
when we're going to be thrown in prison for preaching the truth from God's word. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's inevitable, isn't it? It's inevitable. And actually, it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. We can trust him with that. And so we don't need to be anxious about it. But you see, suffering for Christ takes a great deal of guts, doesn't it? And it takes a great deal of, of fierce faithfulness to his gospel. It takes being determined not to bow to those who want to reimagine Christianity. There are so many people today who are trying to do that. They call themselves Christians. They call themselves pastors uh, in the Christian church. And yet they're rewriting their Bibles. They're trying to recreate God in their own image. They're trying to tear pages out of their Bibles. They want to reimagine Christianity as if it needs to be improved, as if what Jesus did wasn't enough. And so Paul says in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As you look back on this last year during all of this campaign and the coronavirus and all of those things, have you been living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Think about the things that you've said, the ways that you've treated people. Maybe you have. And if that's the case, then to God be the glory. But if that's not the case, hallelujah, bow before your maker. And repent of those sins and allow him to transform you. Because you are being sanctified. You are being made new creatures who can serve the Lord in all things. And so only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I may hear of you that you are, and what Paul wants is that he wants to be able to hear that the Philippian church is standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He doesn't mention, oh man, if we can get the right emperor in who will help promote Christianity, then man, everything will be great. But until then, man, it's really bad, and we're not really sure about all this. That's not what he's saying. So we ought to be standing as one, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing firm in the truth of Scripture and of, in, 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 of who Jesus Christ is. And we should not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Do you hear that? How much of our angst over the last year or so has been driven by fear of our opponents, a fear of what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen. Those who do not know the Lord are going to do awful things. Isn't that what the Psalms have taught us? Isn't that what Proverbs has taught us? The way of the wicked will perish. There's no doubt about that. But the way of the righteous will go on and on and on forever because Jesus died for our sins, because we are now in Christ. And so there's a choice that every human being has to make, isn't there? Every single human being. Doesn't that cause us to feel the urgency of sharing the gospel? Just walk out these doors and find somebody and tell them about Jesus. Isn't that what we need to do? This world needs Christ perhaps more than ever. And Paul goes on, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
You see, it isn't enough just to believe that Christ did some stuff for us. But we need to be changed and transformed by what he did. And to live in a way that brings glory to him. And one of those ways is that we suffer for him. That we share in his sufferings. What did Christ do? He humbled himself and became a man. That in itself is huge. Because he was sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But he wasn't afraid to give up some of his power and authority to come and save us. We shouldn't be afraid to give up some of our power and authority in our culture so that others might be saved. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to look upon a drug addict with compassion instead of anger? Are we willing to look on a, a practicing homosexual with love instead of anger? Are we willing to share the gospel lovingly with these people because we were once enemies of Christ too? And he demonstrated his love for us by dying for us. Isn't that what we're called to do? So brothers and sisters, if God calls us to suffer, isn't it clear that it's for a good reason? It's for a gospel reason. It's for an eternal reason. And God would only do that in his holiness. He would never call us to do something that is evil as long as we're putting our faith in Christ. He would never call us to destruction. Suffering for the sake of Christ always produces exactly what God wants, wants to happen. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the best news you've heard in a long time? And so then, we don't need to be anxious because we obey in humility. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the way we're to treat one another and the attitude that we should have for one another. And in fact, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Christ was not a, 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 a God of ambition. But he was willing to let go of his authority and power to become a man, to live and die for us. So he let go, willingly, to do the will of his Father. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, listen to this, he humbled himself by being, be, becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. Even death on a cross. This is the worst, most shameful kind of death that the Roman world could imagine. It was full of shame. It was the worst thing that could happen to you. And that's exactly what Christ did for you and me. And it's what he did for many who are not yet saved. So do not be anxious about anything. But go out into the world in humility and preach the gospel. Tell people what Jesus did. Tell them what he did. And finally, we don't need to be anxious because our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, find a mentor, find a true believer, somebody who's seeking hard after Christ and spend time with them. 
We have opportunities for that left and right in our fellowship with home groups and just getting to know somebody in our congregation. You're not going to get to know somebody by coming to church and leaving as quick as you can. But if you spend time with these people who are gathered around you, you know what? You're going to grow in the Lord. And you know what else? They're going to grow in the Lord too because they know you. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people who claim to be Christians who are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what happens to them? Paul says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, their own appetites. And they glory in their shame. They call evil good and good evil. These are people whose minds are set on earthly things. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how our minds should be set upon the things above, not on the things of this earth. Because you see, in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same Savior who keeps his promises. This is the same one who died that shameful death for you and me, and he hasn't just left to leave us alone to wallow in this world. He sent the Holy Spirit to live in us by faith in him so that we can bring glory to Christ right in the middle of all of this yuck. And so our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Lord Jesus Christ and what will he do? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the God of power. This is the God who changes us. This is the God who takes us from being enemies of God into being devoted lovers of God. To being passionately of uh, be, to be people who are passionately following him in everything, fearlessly, because we trusted God. This is the God whom we serve, the God who has done by his power what we could not do. And he is the God who will one day keep his promise and subject all things to himself as he gathers us up to glory. That's why we don't need to be anxious about anything. We don't need to be anxious because of Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he's done for us. He is the one who emptied himself and became obedient to the point of a terrible, shameful death, and he's calling us to the same thing, to go out into this world and sacrifice ourselves for his sake so that others might be saved. Our lack of anxiety has nothing to do with who won an election. Has nothing even to do with the state of your family life. We're not burying our heads in the sand. We're not being masochist and enjoying the pain. But we confront these things head on with the gospel. We do not need to fear if we are in Christ. We have nothing to fear. And so the work that Christ has begun, begun in us through faith in him, uh, he is going to be faithful to complete. We can trust that God is going to do that. 
We can trust him with everything that's going on in our lives because our hope is real. Our hope is real because our God keeps his promises. He is faithful. And we also suffer for his sake. And our suffering has divine purposes. And that's to draw other people to Christ too. And in the process, we're, we begin to have a closer relationship with him as well. Our humility shows the world who Jesus Christ is, a humble servant who loved us before we loved him. That's our calling, brothers and sisters, to be people of Christ-like humility who demonstrate what Christ has done for us. Our faith in Christ makes us secure in the fact that our citizenship is in heaven because on that day of Christ, we are guaranteed to be with him forever in an unimaginable glory. Just think with me for just a second. Can you imagine for an hour not sinful thought, not sinning, not feeling sorrow about something? None of that is going to be where we're going. There's only going to be Rejoicing in the Lord because he is the one who did it all for us. This is why we don't need to be anxious, even in the middle of the horrors of this world, whether we need another stent put in our hearts, whether we've gotten a terrible diagnosis from the doctor, or whether people are protesting on the streets, whether people are violating our rights, whether we're being persecuted for our faith, or even if our lives are threatened because we love Jesus. Jesus puts it beautifully himself, of course, in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 31. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's soon before his crucifixion. And he says, do you now believe? In other words, it's pretty easy to believe when you're standing here looking at me without knowing what's about to happen. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Paul denied, or Peter denied Christ three times. The disciples scattered, they're in fear, it's all over. They're hiding out because they, they think the authorities are going to come for them and execute them too. And they basically turn their backs on Christ, and yet... As Christ is hanging from the cross, you know what? He is the only faithful Jew that ever lived. He is the only faithful lover of God who has ever lived. He is the one who is obedient all the way. And that's why he's the perfect sacrifice for us. And that's why through faith in him, we don't need to be anxious. And so Jesus goes on, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have what? Permission to be angry with the world. Permission to be just eaten up with fear over something that's going on in your life. No. He says that he has said these things to you, to us, to his disciples, and by extension to us. He says them that we may have peace. Peace. Doesn't that, that sound wonderful? Peace. But you see that peace, we don't have to wait for it until the end. We can have it right now. 
Do not be anxious about anything. Because Jesus goes on to say this. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. Until the coming of Christ again, until his second coming, we will have tribulation. The only question is, is how we're going to live in that tribulation of who we're going to rep represent, of whether we're going to be uh, exuding fear or trust in God, uh, trusting him enough that we don't need to be anxious. Because Jesus finally says, take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. That's the promise. That's why we don't need to be anxious about anything. And so as we see the evils of this world, as we experience them ourselves, as persecution rises up against us, we can know that the Lord has overcome this world, not just in the distant future, but in the here and now because of what he did on the cross for us. And because of that, we have the ability to live in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is reason to rejoice and reason to have peace. Amen? Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, I'm going to be bold and thank you for what happened yesterday and this week. I don't understand it. I don't understand any of these things that you're doing. But Heavenly Father, we, tr we trust you. Because you are the God who keeps his promises. You are the God who has saved us by the sacrifice of your son. And because of that sacrifice and because of our faith in him, you've given us a calling. The highest calling on earth. And that is to represent our Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of all of this that's going on around us. And we give you glory for that. And thanksgiving. We rejoice in you. Lord, because of what you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. Well, let's rise for the benediction. And let's benediction from that verse that we've been meditating on today. Very simple. And it comes with a promise. Do not be anxious about anything. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Go in the peace of God. Be happy today. Rejoice because he is Lord. Amen? Amen.